0: welcome to video store my name is sam mulberry today we are talking about the 1971 film walkabout so let's step into barrett fisher's video store barrett how you doing
1: doing great Sam. thanks
0: barrett we have uh watched uh a few australian films um some some peter weir uh from his australian days and this film predates that and we'll talk about how this is and is not an australian film Uh, But maybe to start with, what is your history with this film? And then I want to get into Nicholas Rogue a little bit in general.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, that's probably the the place to start for me because um, this is a film that I came to after a couple of other Rogue films. And I'm trying to remember the first time I saw it. It's another one of those films that falls into the category that I often bring up, Sam, of films that I knew about for a long time before I ever saw them. And, um, you know, the posters are kind of iconic um i'm having a really hard time remembering i think it was sometime in the 90s i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that sometime in the 90s early 2000s i know that i watched it on uh dvd with my wife i know we watched it together so that helps me date it somewhere within the maybe last 10 15 years
0: okay and and i know you know when we first watched uh the last wave when we watched um uh picnic at hanging rock both of those weird films as you you can't read about them with somebody making a reference back to walkabout as Mm. kind of an origin story for um uh maybe where the australian new wave grows out of or grows kind of in response to um in 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 a number of ways Um, Mm -hmm. who is nicholas rogue as a filmmaker i have i really have no reference points for him at all i it's even possible i have seen a film of his and just not known it but but like i have no sense of who he is
1: well i guess the first thing i want to say about rogue is that um he is one of a relatively small number of cinematographers who uh started out uh doing cinematography and he was a cinematographer on some pretty important films he worked with Truffaut on fahrenheit 451 with david lean on Lawrence arabia Uh, Roger Corman, famous for B-films, A Mask of the Red Death. Um, So he's got about a 10-year career as a cinematographer, and then he moves into into film. His first film is one I still haven't seen, and a film that's been on my list for a long time. It's called Performance uh, with Mick Jagger. Uh, And that started him uh, in this pattern of making films with um, uh, people better known as singers as their leads than as actors. So... To me, his most significant or most disturbing film is The Man Who Fell to Earth uh, from 76 with David Bowie. And then he made Bad Timing uh, with Art Garfunkel in, in 1980. Um, and then his career kind of gets, gets, gets kind of smaller. He does, he does some films that are, are really pretty quirky. He did a film called Insignificance, which is about an imaginary meeting among uh, Joe DiMaggio, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Albert Einstein, and I forget who the fourth one is. Um, his probably his last big commercial success or well well known film was he did an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches uh, with with Jim Henson. So that might if, if there's anything he's done that's close to mainstream, that would probably probably be it. Uh, he then started doing a lot of TV work, and as I mentioned to you in other contexts, uh, he did a television film adaptation of Conrad's Heart of Darkness.
0: Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, and I it didn't make a big impression on me. Surprisingly <laughs> enough,
0: <laughs> um, it's it's interesting to hear that he was a cinematographer or 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 worked on Lawrence of Arabia. Because I was thinking about the, that when I was thinking about this movie. A little bit of like a return to the you know so for him this is a return to the desert, a different desert, but um, it's a lot of beautiful desert footage in this movie, not unlike Lawrence of Arabia. It's very different in, in every other way, but um, yeah, yeah. But but I definitely thought about that. So, how indicative is this film of his other works? And I mean, that could be narratively, thematically, stylistically. Like, is do you see a any kind of connective tissue between this and other things?
1: Yeah, I think um, certainly stylistically, um, the way that he, he's kind of well known for doing a lot of the intercutting. You know, he has a lot, a lot of cross cutting, a lot of cross editing. Um, which also is thematic as well, Um, but also certain effects that it's really hard to account for why he does them, except they seem to be, they're almost like alienation effects or effects to draw attention to the fact you're watching a film. So he does those sudden stills, he does um, uh, shutter clicks uh, a few times. So I I think he's a filmmaker who often will kind of foreground the actual technique that that he's using. He's a filmmaker who uh, he's really interested in characters who are uh, both symbolically and literally out of their element. Um, Man Who Fell to Earth is a really uh, extreme and uh, highly effective example of that, where David Bowie plays a, a, an extraterrestrial who comes to Earth in order to uh, find ways to retrieve water for his planet. Uh, and he literally becomes uh, stranded on on Earth. Um, and obviously here the children are out of their element socially as well as physically. So rogue is really interested in that. He's also known, but this is something I don't get, get quite as much of in Walkabout. about. He's known often for a, a strong sense of foreboding in his films. Um, oh, the other most famous film is I didn't mention is don't look now uh, with Julie Christie, Julie Christie and, um, and Donald Sutherland. That is an incredibly disturbing film. Um, and I don't, those are elements I don't see in Walkabout with him. I think one of the things we need to talk about with Walkabout is the degree to which there there is or should be a sentimental interpretation of what's going on in the film, which is not really typical of Rogue. So of all of his films, this is the one that has the thing closest to sentiment. Um, and that's that's unusual. But certainly these characters being really literally kind of fish out of water uh, is very much a Rogue uh, tendency
0: yeah i found myself deeply moved by this movie in ways that i didn't expect i i came into it with some expectations because i had heard it referenced um i'm a little bit familiar with the idea of a walkabout and you know you could look at the casting of this and say okay this is going to be a movie about kids who get stranded in in the outback like that's like but there's stuff that he does in this movie that i did not expect and um I feel like this is a this is a a movie that hit me. Like I guess it hit me emotionally in ways that I that mm-hmm. I was not prepared for. So as we mentioned, this is not an Australian film, but it's also very Australian because Rogue is Rogue himself is English, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know?
0: um, uh, and it was interesting because I was thinking last week when we talked about Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, Roger Ebert talked about like two things that are very indicative of Australian cinema. And this has both of those things, which is uh beautiful cinematography, which this mm-hmm. definitely, this is a gorgeous film. Um, and he spends a lot of time both looking at the natural world in terms of um, uh, kind of land, almost, you know, landscape painting with the camera, with the sunsets and things like that. But also the, the, um, uh, the way he films the animals and stuff and and cuts that in. Uh, and then also stories about English colonial culture culture encountering indigenous culture or sort of ancient natural power that that's that that's like uh typical of an Australian story. So it has both of those things, you know, that you'll later see in Hanging Rock or the Last wave um. At the same time, this film fared very poorly at the Australian box office, so Australians <laughs> did not necessarily, at least initially, wrap their arms around this movie. So, one of the things I was wondering is, um, could this film have been made about another place or another culture, or is this uniquely Australian?
1: That's a that's a that's a really good question, Sam, and I I do think that. Um, yeah, you know that's yeah. No, I, I, I think it, it's hard for me to think of this as not being Australian. And I think it's because um, kind of to pick up to what you to pick up on what you, what you were saying about the the elements of an Australian film, um, I will confess this is not an insight I had. I got this from one of the critics I, I, I read. But one of the most striking images of the film is you see the sun as this big flaming yellow ball and it's surrounded by orange and black, okay? And that's those are the colors of the Aboriginal flag. Hmm. So this is a long way of answering your question. What Rogue is doing there is he's taking kind of those cultural elements, the the Aboriginal culture and the and the colonizing culture, and he's embedding them in within the landscape itself. So that that's one way I would argue that it, it's uniquely to to Australia because of the connection between the land and the cultures within the land. And so it's very much about whose land is this. Um, and so the landscape in, in some respects can never be neutral. It's always, and, and I think Rogue does this, is the landscape is always infused with some kind of meaning, like whose landscape is this? Who is here? What is the, What are they doing in this landscape? How does it affect the other people that are there? And so I think the film really taps into a long history of the conflict between Aboriginal and colonial culture. And so for that reason, I think it's more than just a survival tale of two kids in the wilderness. I think it's it's intricate it's intricately intertwined with the social, and historical and political history of aboriginal and, co- and colonizers.
0: Absolutely. And and at, and at the same time, it has themes in it that are very universal. Yes. And, and it's and it's very clear. So for example, themes that I'm sure will come up as we talk about this sort of the the juxtaposition of the man-made world mm-hmm. and the natural world and various man-made worlds because we can't pretend that like the you know mm. the indigenous culture is not also man-made well it is but it's but it's different than the western man-made world and then it's different than the natural world right we see we also see animals and things like that right mm-hmm. so we're we're sort of seeing kind of three cultures, if you Mm -hmm. can think of like the natural world as a culture, you know, and then this sort of presents itself that way. So you get the intersection of those. I mean, at the same time, one of the things that's at the core of what is so, uh, wrenching about this is that it is a coming of age story as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and it is a story about the difficulty. And when you read about rogue, his sense is maybe the impossibility at times of communication. Between cultures, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know that 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 was something I was not expecting. I was expecting this movie to to ultimately be about like how they come, you know, how through this adventure these these children come to like this kind of understanding between each other. And and Rogue is interested in saying, yeah, that's how that's how we often tell these kinds of stories. But I mean, I, maybe this gives a a snapshot into Rogue's worldview, which I don't know enough about him to speak into, but. Um, this movie is not uh, optimistic about about some of that stuff,
1: no, you know, about uh, you know about halfway through, maybe a little farther, you 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 I, I think I jotted down, um, does the girl change? You know and it, it, and and you're right. I mean, so in that sense, i i I do think, even though we can talk maybe about some tropes the movie falls into, um, I do think that that's one trope that he that he avoids that um, or that he directly works against. This is not going to be about how these three meet out in the desert and, and and they become, you know, lifelong friends and they bond in ways that, that, that doesn't work that way. So that's where I think you see Rogue, the the unsentimentalist at work. Um, I want to get back to what you were saying a minute ago, though, about the different worlds of the film, because um, one of my favorite shots recurring shots in the film is um the the tracking shot along the brick wall Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know you try it actually reminded me of some of the tracking shots in vagabond um except you weren't following a a person but it's like the shot the tracking shots in vagabond you go along all of a sudden there there she is so the first tracking shot with the with the brick wall the red brick wall is it tracks and then you open up on a cityscape right Next tracking shot, it tracks over to the right. It opens up on the empty outback, the empty desert, which, of course, is the same, reflects the, the, almost the same material as in the bricks. Third shot, right, it tracks along, you open up, and there's the car in the middle of the desert. So now you get civilization. It, 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 and and I think, okay, nobody else said this, anything I read, but I think, I think, the, I think the car is a visual pun because it's a beetle. Mm-hmm. And it also it seems to me that given what little I can discern about the father's socioeconomic status, the beetle seems a little bit of a comedown of a car for him to drive so I think I think that I, I just think that rogue's having a little bit of uh, fun with that with that visual point
0: absolutely well, one of the things I was I was thinking about I mean you talked about the specifics of the Australian setting and uh, and, and really probably what I'm wondering is also the specifics of 1971 like like mm. could this movie be set in 2023 or 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 are or would it not work like 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 is 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 1971 close to the last time you can tell a story set at that time or or has the world flattened even more i mean obviously it has um mm. but but i'm i'm sort of curious like is this even a story possible to tell in 2023
1: well I, one thing I will say about setting it in 71, and as I, I as I read some of the contemporary reviews, is that, you know, 71 is close enough to the late 60s that people are thinking about, um, people are thinking about countercultural moves, people are thinking about um, the dead end that uh, in some ways Western civilization seemed to have been at the end of the 60s with various kinds of, of protests, and um, and, and I think about well where are we in 2023? I mean in 2023 we are also facing uh, exhaustion with some more political processes. We're facing uh, the threat of uh, of glo- global climate change. I mean there are lots of reasons in 2023 where we might want to say, gee, is there is there something that we can get back to? Is there is there an alternative to civilization? Is it mm-hmm. you know is, there, is is there something? Is there some lesson we need to learn? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I I know I, I think to me. Um, Sam, that is one of the ways in which the film um, hasn't aged badly at all, um, because I think that the kinds of questions the film is raising are still, they're kind of universal questions about whether, whether you frame it in terms of the myth of the golden age or you frame it in terms of uh, the destructiveness of civilization or the hopefulness of youth, whatever, however you want to look at it. I think there's a lot of really universal themes going on.
0: Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I loved about this movie is this might be one of the best show don't tell movies we've watched. Mm-hmm. There is very little specifically meaningful dialogue in this film. I just just to be curious, I I, I pulled up the script of this movie and it's thirty three pages long. This is mm-hmm. a you know hour and forty eight movie and. And, and and a lot of the stuff that gets said, it's not that it's not meaningful, but it's not specifically meaningful. It's not like there are certain lines in this movie that I think hit particularly hard, mm-hmm. but there's a whole bunch of it where it's like, it's not that specific thing that they're saying that matters. There's not a moment where, where somebody like comes to a big realization and expresses a big thought. Um, but this movie's, I feel like it's chock full of ideas at the same time. It's just not interested in telling you about them. Um, for example, many things happen without explicit explanation. Mm. Um, and you know, for one thing, it's a very simple story, so you don't need that. For another thing, I feel like rogue is trusting viewers and maybe that's something that's, that works or doesn't work for people generally. But, um, you know, I think about, for example, you know, the, uh, the father is not in this movie a lot, but he does some fairly significant things. That that and and you're only left to say what was that like 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 it is this movie opens literally with a bang, um and uh and and you don't get you never go back to get a real explanation of that other than it happened, um and then because this movie is about the uh kind of inability to communicate, especially the maybe the inability of words to communicate things, um he's really trusting the actors to convey things without without words i mean this is a story that is intentionally stripped away of language that can cross over between important characters in the film
1: well i interestingly i, I don't know if it's ironic or just interesting whatever that the uh, the screenplay was by edward bond who is one of the more significant um playwrights of the 20th century he's got about 50 plays to his credit. Uh, he also did screenplays for um antonioni he did screenplay for blow-up and he did two other screenplays but uh, I think that probably half of the screenplay is the story the boy tells. Uh, that long story the boy tells in the middle. But, so ironically, I think the character with the most lines is the six or seven year old uh, right. who, who tells who tells that story. But you're you're right. I mean, it's the trusting of the viewer. Like you know, what's happened? Has the father been canned from his job? We we don't know. And 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 that also continues in the way that he doesn't. He doesn't provide closure in, the, in, in a typical sense. We don't see the children reunited with their mother. We don't know what's happened to the mother. Uh, presumably, you know, she's alive somewhere. We don't. We don't know. And and so the, there's part of it is that Rogue is telling us, well, we don't actually need to know those things. Um, we don't really even need to know why the father tries to kill the children uh, or why he kills himself, um, because what all we need is. Uh, is action that will set we, we need we need events that will set the plot in action that's what he's what he's really interested in
0: absolutely so one of the things that i found interesting is in a movie that doesn't explain things uh it's the very first thing you see is a title card which rogue did not want it's a title right. card explaining what a walkabout is right. and i think that was forced on him by the studios or by the producers but um it is completely unnecessary uh you know like 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 you could look up that word and knowing what that word means tells you a little bit about maybe why um why i i should also say none of the characters have names either so i am going to use the actors first names cuz it's very confusing if you say right. the girl the boy the older boy so i'm going to call him david why david is out alone hunting like like it's never the only the only explanation you get for that is that title card but it's unnecessary you also don't need that um, need that there? The title of the of the movie is enough to give you that.
1: Well, that's the thing. The, the the title card creates a culturally specific meaning for Walkabout, whereas the movie is is about they're all on Walkabout, right? the mm-hmm. the, the The two white kids are on Walkabout, and so to so to to focus to and it almost almost makes it seem as though oh the movie is is David's story, and of course it is, but it's not just his story. So it's. Yeah, you're right. It's one of those dumb things that studio executives do because they don't trust the audience the way the director does.
0: Yes. So <laughs> then we open up on, on some various walls. We have both stone walls that are the, you know, either in caves or the side of a the side of a mountain, and then mm-hmm. brick walls. So to your yeah. point, like these are the same materials crafted in different ways. Um, we see cityscapes of, you know, businessmen walking through the street. We see private school children. And at first you're not sure who you're being introduced to as like, Mm -hmm. like which of these children am I supposed to pay attention to? Um, To the point where I think the first time through, I didn't realize I was looking at Jenny when they were in that classroom Mm -hmm. full of girls doing the voice exercises. Mm -hmm. And I realized like, Oh, that's, that's my main character because she's not even necessarily super centered in that to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is in hindsight, but at the time you're just thinking, well, this is just another, these, these are generic, shots of kind of western life in australia um you see a butcher shop these are images that come back and he intercuts these with images from the natural world from the outback um and that stuff that uh is both interesting but also can easily seem heavy-handed like i mean it is it is a show don't tell but it's like a very obvious show of i'm going to put these two things right next to each other and what you're supposed to think about them you know like like so I didn't find that terribly off-putting although there there it is moments where it's like I got it you don't need to you don't need to do that I got it.
1: But I don't, but I, yeah it, it is obvious but I also think as as I reflect on that Sam I also think that the 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 meaning or the interpretation of those cuts I think could be open. Mm-hmm. In other words, you could say well okay what is he trying to say by juxtap- juxtaposing the hunting of the kangaroo in the in the wild with the processing of the meat in the city, right? I mean, there's there's there, there's different different ways you can think about that. You can think about it maybe in the very obvious way, right? Which he's trying to get at, which is, well, you think you're civilized, and and maybe in fact you actually are no less barbaric than those that you that you. To consider savages, right? So you you could say that. You could say the. Uh, you, you could say it's arguing that civilization is a. Um, it's almost a Conradian critique of civilization. Civilization is a veneer, and beneath that veneer, you actually still have some essential, um, uh, some essential savagery. If you want to look at it that way, or or you could look at it as saying, you know, we think these are separate things, but in fact, there's continuity here. You have forgotten how it is that this kangaroo meat has gotten to you, and so what you're not realizing is that there is more unity here than there is difference. And I think about the way that hourly and orally hourly in terms of the music, right? When you have cityscapes, he's using the didgeridoo, and you're getting these, you're getting, you're, you're getting that that uh, Aboriginal music, and then in the desert or in, in the outback, you get those haven't that that angelic kind of choir music. And again, you could, to me, that's much more about saying these worlds could potentially, should potentially be actually should actually see their similarities and not and not their differences. Now, I realize not to get too far ahead of ourselves that later in the film there's an inner intercutting that maybe cuts against that interpretation, but I at least want to suggest that it's not quite as. Uh, as obvious as it might
0: seem absolutely no i think i in that and i, I yeah I, and that's what i'm saying to, or i feel too is like like i think it is uh it is effective it, it i think it, it and to my sense i was really talking about the second time you see this where it's a little like yeah you know, yeah you right. I, I do think part of that too though you could also view uh and I, this you could also view that cinematically in terms of like um you know we're and maybe this is more modern eyes than 1971 but like i was watching this movie saying oh my gosh i'm actually seeing a kangaroo be killed here like yeah, like yeah. you know which it's sort of like the scene in apocalypse now when they kill the water buffalo and it, you're actually seeing an animal die and but he's also saying like yeah but if you see somebody eating a steak is that any different? It's like you, we we've taken away the animal's screams, but you're still watching somebody eat the flesh of that animal.
1: In fact, you could argue the way that a cow is killed in a slaughterhouse is actually cr- even crueler than the way the kangaroo is killed. Mm-hmm. Kangaroo at least had a chance to run away. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. So so
0: so so I like I actually think you're right. There's a lot of like like kind of rich interpretations there. Um so then we move to we start to realize that there are characters kind of um emerging from this like from these cityscapes because we start to see them more we start to see Jenny and Luke we start to see the father um we get this great shot of the mother cooking in the kitchen which you don't realize you're going to get a perfect callback to uh, at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she's listening to the, I love the radio in this whole, this whole thing, but she's listening to the radio, the description of, of a a recipe for basically drowning a song, fattening a songbird and drowning it in cognac um, as she's, as she's cooking and preparing food. So we get yet another like food preparation thing, which, which actually sounds like torture to the animal. Right. And then we get what is, Maybe one of the best shots of the movie, which is the father on the terrace looking out mm-hmm. over the pool and the kids are swimming in the pool and he's looking at them. Now, you have no no reference point for what he's thinking about, mm-hmm. but you also see the pool is right next to the sea. <laughs> and it's like it's so, so it's so strange. It's like a man made sea next to mm-hmm. the sea. And it's uh, I I mean, I that's obviously a real place, but it's, it's, it's such a strange shot to look at. And it makes you ask questions of like, why, like, like, why, it's almost like we are recreating the world, but we're recreating a a sanitized safe version of the world. And we're putting it right next to the, the natural version of it.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely one of those images that, uh, that focuses on the notion that civilization has, uh, is this artificial construct that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, have any relation to the natural world which actually connects very nicely with what you were just talking about As she's listening to the recipe for or for for ortolone uh which is a is a is an outlaw delicacy in france as you probably know and when people eat ortolone they do so with a cloth over their heads because it's so disgusting you can't see what the other people are doing so again there there's a juxtaposition of this you know, you could argue, well, gosh, that's, it's, it's, it's this uh, highly civilized process of creating this really almost barbaric ritual. Um, I also want to pick up on what you said. The radio is a fantastic character uh, in, in this film. And you think about all of the stuff that comes over the radio. Like you get table etiquette it t- it telling you exactly where the forks are, are supposed to go what to do if you make a mistake. You get math problems. Uh, you get the superhero... Uh, serial, you get, of course, pop music, including a Rod Stewart song, Uh, and then you get this interesting little science lesson, and the narrator says, nothing can ever be created or destroyed, so it's really, it's really interesting, I mean, there there are all these kind of disconnected ways of remaining, in some ways, connected to civilization, and perhaps a reminder that they're never really very far from civilization. I mean, it's shot as if they're quote in the middle of nowhere, but actually, we know when they walk by that farm and the woman says hi to the Aboriginal. We we know that we don't know all along how close they've been. It may be it may be that they've been very close all along. So again, it's Rogue making that point that this that on the one hand these are very different worlds. On the other hand, these are worlds that are very close. Um, and he kind of plays with that closeness and distance.
0: Well, my favorite thing about the scene you were just talking about where, where the woman is trying to talk to David is it's the first moment when you realize, oh, David's encountered white Europeans before, mm-hmm. because it's not, he's not like, 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 it, it just seems like part of his life. And then it's such a great shot. Cause you look down the hill and you realize like, they can almost see each other, you know? But but so so you re- you learn something about David. It's not like David is leading them to the first white European I can find to be like, "Hey, I've brought you home." He's leading them somewhere, um, which which plays into the larger piece of the story of how how much they're not really communicating to a certain degree.
1: Well, well, first of all, that ex- that explains um, why he walks past them. Mm-hmm. Right? Why when he sees them in the oasis, he has no sense that they're necessarily lost or in need, and it also raises the question of, well, what ultimately is his destination with them? You know, I mean, I mean, he he couldn't he get them somewhere more quickly, uh, and so this, of course, raises interesting questions. Uh, not to get ahead of ourselves about his relationship to uh, to Jenny, um, absolutely. Well, so.
0: So I just need to say, I was blown away when the father, we're still within like the first 15 minutes yes. of this movie, when the father starts shooting at the children, I was just, cause I, again, I knew some, some plot device has to go off to get them stranded, but I was not ready for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it actually, it it raises a question as I think about it, which is like, like, what is the right age to watch this movie? Because at, at its core, it is such a children's story, right? Mm-hmm. But it begins with a real with some real dark, dark moments. Yeah, yeah. And it ends in such a like heart-wrenching thing. But at its core, it's like if you took off those, like you could almost just do this movie like with little kids. And it's like mm-hmm. they could they could take that in because it is not a it is not verbal. It's not about those things. And it's this beautiful story. But but surrounding it is, is is all this other stuff. So it, it just made me fascinating to think like who is this movie for?
1: That's a <laughs> that's a really good question, Sam. You know when it when it when it first came out, you know it got a uh, it got an R rating, right? And and because it's got you know the frontal nudity as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really hard because you know in a, in a way, children's stories are often not for children. Maybe maybe that's one way to think about it, right? That um, uh, because there's actually very adult themes or very adult uh, lessons that are that are being taught, and so um, I don't I don't know what the right age to watch this film is. Um, I don't, but I don't think it's for kids. Right. <laughs> I think those things that are there are there to keep the kids out.
0: Yep, he definitely announces that early that this is this is something something else, and of course um, that,
1: that of course that's a theme within the film itself, right? Because Jenny has to kind of guard Luke from knowing what's happened. And so the film itself is telling us this is not a film necessarily for kids. Or it's a film about how there are hard truths that some, you know, if you're Jenny's age, you're ready to start dealing with those hard truths. And if you're Luke's age, you're not.
0: Yeah, I thought that was, I really loved that because at the same time, it's like she's shielding Luke from something. That it's like Luke's gonna figure out yeah. in lots of ways, and by the end of the movie, he just says it. So it's like, yeah. so it's like she's just giving him time to process what he experienced and didn't fully see. So even when they like hear the car accident on the radio during the superhero show, and then we get this cut back to the the reverse, the the played in reverse image of the father sitting back up after like i guess before shooting himself right right cuz it's played in reverse and it's like you get the 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 sense that is that even though luke didn't exactly see that is this luke playing with what he knows must have happened but again rogue doesn't explicitly tell you that but he lays some seeds so by the time you get to the end when they're outside of that the mining village he basically just says father's dead right like like that's and so so like he has come to a full re- a fuller realization about that and they, you know, have a speculative conversation as to why maybe he did that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also interesting enough in, in a film that has a little bit of biblical biblical imagery. It's also a it's also a picture of resurrection, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, you know, is that in fact a possibility, or is it? Rogue is saying he says no. There's there's no resurrection in this in this world. That's that's a that's a fantasy. That's a camera trick.
0: And you do that, uh, you get, that gets doubled with the water buffalo also that is shot that you see, yes, see right. played in reverse. So we get this slow descent into kind of desperation. Like at first it, you know, it feels like, okay, she's trying to keep their spirits up. Um, but, but Jenny herself starts to kind of, you know, uh, again, kind of descend as, as the feeling gets more desperate. And it's at this moment that we get to the kind of oasis tree. Um mm-hmm which is such a great scene um, because this is it, this is also like a weird temptation moment for them because this is the moment when they stop moving. Right. And even when the when when it dries up, Jenny doesn't say, "Well, okay, it's dry, we should go." She says, "We should wait here and hope that the water comes back." So there is this kind of giving up in that because the, she she's no longer thinking about, "Well, if we keep moving, we have we're bound to find someone or something."
1: Yeah, she yeah, you're right. She she I mean, you know, there there is the principle when you're lost the best thing to do is to stay in one place. But at the same time, it also it also points out her relationship with Luke points out the way in which she is kind of on the cusp of of adulthood. And so she's both a child uh, herself and so she's having a hard time with the situation. But at the same time, she's now has kind of Uh, maternal responsibilities uh for luke and so she's gotta she's gotta make a decision for both of them she also knows that he is not at this point i mean even he's his energy is beginning to flag as well and so Mm -hmm. they really don't have any option at this point
0: yes and and the and it's into this world that david appears and we get the i mean it's interesting that they're watching or listening to this superhero story and he talks about how oh you always know they're going to win because the superhero likely, and then and it's it's like into this moment that then David appears as this you know kind of potential hero figure for them, um, and and this is where we get that the inability to communicate and attempts to communicate so jenny just keeps saying water and when you listen to the word she says it's like it's the simplest thing how can you not understand and luke is the one who mimes drinking and then that becomes the connection moment so luke and david seem to be able to actually communicate way more than jenny ever seems to
1: yeah she, she she's the typical picture of the um of the English tourist, right? Who can't? Who figures? You know, if you say it slowly and louder, that they will they will understand. And it's kind of the first indication early on in the film that she is not ever going to be able to communicate with David in the way that Luke is. You know, even though you know Luke like a. Typical kid when he rattles on telling that story and she and she keeps kind of shushing him. He doesn't understand what you're saying. You know, why are you bothering? And even though, of course, he doesn't understand, the fact is Luke is actually trying to make some kind of connection with David. And he even does begin to learn a few words uh, mm-hmm. of David's language, whereas Jenny is just um, completely shut off. And and I think this is part of the significance of, of, of Rogue using uh, English children. Or 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 I, I also read that it was not unusual in Australia at that time for people to kind of cultivate an English rather than an Australian accent. Hmm. So they could be Australians who are trying to sound more English. But I think that's a very deliberate kind of cultural, culturally specific um, person that he's trying to to suggest. She is
0: well, and here this is also where the movie makes a pivot because once David shows up the anxiety about survival kind of melts away like you're yeah. never like well what are they going to eat what cuz like he lives here like you now there is more of this sense of like well we're we're in the place david lives he knows how to he clearly knows how to get food food seems abundant there never is this moment where there's ever again are going to say what are we going to eat he takes them to sources of water and what we s- start to see then is this sort of building of this family of 3 and i'm using that word mm. very intentionally this family of 3 in the outback Um, and I will say there is a very real chemistry, uh, and complicated chemistry between Jenny and David, because even though they can't communicate, uh, and this is again, some of the great show don't tell stuff is just like, I buy there's like, there is this kind of attraction between them that seems so very, very real, even though neither, particularly know how to act on that or what that means and and rogue does a lot of uh does a lot of stuff to kind of point to those things without anybody ever really saying anything about it during this part of the movie.
1: Yeah, so you don't yeah, you don't really know what they're thinking and you don't really know what the barriers are. Um You know, I mean, is it it a cultural barrier for her? Is it because she's too young to fully understand what even her own impulses are? Is it because he himself actually can't think outside of his own cultural references in terms of how do I relate to this person? So so I think Rogue is really interested in the ways in which you could almost argue we are – trapped by our cultures Mm -hmm. and you know we can look at these individuals and say well they they don't know how to or they don't want to step outside of their culture um, in order to connect but road might be suggesting a deeper and more disturbing uh view which is we can't um even if we think we can't even if we think we want to maybe we are in fact too limited by our particular Mm -hmm upbringing our values our assumptions about about the world so in that respect um i think the film does deflect a lot of sentimentality uh with that recognition
0: so we get another really important uh scene or sets of scenes as they're as they're sort of moving as a group uh, and it's clearly a scene that was very important to rogue but also very complicated and fraught in some other ways and that is while David is hunting and we see Luke start to like at least play hunt with him, we have the the Jenny swimming scene, and those are those are intercut. Mm-hmm. Um and like, like I said, in listening to the commentary and listening to both um the actress and 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 uh, Nicholas Rogue talk about this, you know, this is that 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 prolongated swimming scene, like I said, is really important to them. I mean it it's sort of clearly points to like a, a, again, a coming of age, uh, sexually without being erotic, uh, necessarily. Um, and it's definitely important to the ending of the film when we get, uh, this sort of, uh, return to this scene, whether it's a, a memory or, or, a uh, sense of what could have been, or, you know, or, or, or something like that. What's your thoughts on this again, but it's a pretty prolonged scene in the film.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know. There's, you. I think you could look at it a couple of different ways. I think you can look at it as um, it's a it's a moment of um, a kind of a a kind of a paradise, a kind of an Edenic moment, right? A kind of art, a kind of archetype of innocence and um, this kind of unself conscious enjoyment of the pleasure of, of the of the water um, that could have been that, that that could have been something that somehow she could have held on to she could have kept or it's something that it, or that it represents something kind of unattainable and, and and i think how you think about that really affects how you think about the end of the film because you know yeah. is this about a moment in time that could transform your life or is this about a moment in time or this or is this about a moment out of time that represents a kind of it's almost though like she's participating in a kind of mythos that cannot be instantiated in, in real life. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not as though you can go into the outback, have this transcendent moment and your life is different. It's more like you can only have this moment in the outback in a billabong, uh, but you can't have it any, anywhere else. So I, th- I think it's a it's a it's a moment of um, almost you know blissful unself consciousness that ultimately can't be connected with the rest of your life.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this se- swimming here is very different than the swimming we see at the beginning of the film in the the pool. Yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, just just as we're hurtling through this plot, so then they arrive at the the abandoned house. Um, and this I feel like is is really interesting because Jenny starts to go through the house and she starts to really, I would say here's where she goes through, it's maybe not changes, but her like mood definitely changes as she starts to like go through the, you know, kind of a, the abandoned house, the the photographs she's looking at, she starts to cry. And she goes to what I think are the graves of the people who lived in this yes. house. Um, yes. uh, so, so she, I mean, for her, this is a a moment where she is starting to reconnect to a world she knows, even though it's not that she knows these specific people, but there is sort of uh, maybe a melting away of what they've been doing for the last days. And now there's now she's starting to understand a reconnection with that. Um, There's a, there's a really interesting moment that I didn't catch the first time I watched this, but the second time, this is the one time where she speaks to David in his language when she asks for water and Mm -hmm. David responds by saying the word water, which is also the only time I think he speaks English. Mm -hmm. So there's, there is this moment that is fleeting of like, well, have they actually connected in this way? Um, You know, because, because we're, it's the one time we see a language crossover between the two of them. Um, And it's interesting to think about, you know, how does David perceive this house? Uh, versus, how do uh, Jenny and Luke think about this house?
1: Well, that exchange, and you're right, Sam. That is the only time they have that connection. I I assume that is the catalyst for his for his courtship. Uh, and and it, it's 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 a very rogue and irony that the that that it has a completely unintended consequence. that, that is not that, that the moment when they seem to connect with each other is actually the moment when they're continuing to miss each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the reason the house is important for for Jenny and the reason why she she cries is that's she's had to put off her emotional response to her father's death, mm. uh, and I think now that she's back in a pseudo civilized setting and she's looking at old photographs and looking at graves, I think that's the, that's one moment maybe when she has to think about her father's death as well.
0: And I and I think you know. I don't know why you, if, what your thoughts about why David leads them to this spot specifically, because it's, I mean, my interpretation is, I mean, the reason he doesn't, you know, bring them to the other white Westerners that he has encountered is he's bringing, I I mean, I interpret this as he's bringing them to a place that, um, will seem familiar-ish to them. And, and maybe that this is, this is perhaps the home for the, for yes. this, for this family that we have built um and we see david then go hunting which he's done throughout this whole movie but the hunting experience is very different this time because he also encounters western hunters um who are shooting for I'm not even sure It doesn't seem like they're shooting for food. It also doesn't seem like they're really shooting for sport because it's fish in a barrel. It's like, there's just, it's like just shoot. It's kind of, I mean, I read that in the same way, uh, like Americans with the bison, right. Where they just go West and just like are actually seemingly trying to just destroy this animal, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and they leave the, they leave the carcasses behind. Um, and David definitely has the, you can, you can sense this, this idea that like, maybe this is not a maybe this is even too far away from a world he can live in and understand because there is too much crossover between between the worlds here uh and David takes Luke out and shows him the road
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and then we get David's uh courtship dance and again I love this because you're watching this movie it's very clear what he's doing or at least you what your assumption is well this is what this is about but it never nothing ever tells you explicitly that that's what it is but 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 you've managed to piece that together and that's where i think rogue is also is trusting you um and and you know that is rejected or misunderstood it's hard to tell like like is jenny rejecting david or not understanding what he's doing um one thing that really was was rough to hear her say is when she's talking to Luke i think it's even while he's still dancing when it's when it's nighttime he says we're going she says we're going on our own tomorrow suppose he tried to and then she trails off and it's and it it's sort of this sense of like you think they've built this relationship and this friendship but you see all of these um <laughs> really western racist instincts kind of bubble up in her at that moment you know at at least i make i mean it could be she would feel that way about any man but there's this is definitely an othering moment where she has had so much experience with this person who has saved her life and all of a sudden she snaps into well suppose he like tried to rape me i mean that's what she's i assume what she's saying there right and it's so it's so gut-wrenching to hear her say that because you're like you know that that's not that that's not what this is about, but she maybe is unable to see that or understand that,
1: yeah, so it's it's almost like a double rejection, right? Because either she doesn't understand and she rejects it or she thinks she understands and she rejects it. Um and at the same time, what what Rogue is also doing, which I think is again his his pushing against sentiment, is. You know, the the sentimental story is she goes out in the wilderness and she has a transformative experience, Mm -hmm. even if the transformative experience doesn't mean that she understands David's dance. But but at least, to to use parlance of the time, at least her consciousness might have been raised in some way. Mm -hmm. She might have come away with with a greater appreciation. And it seems as though it has left her fundamentally untouched, Um, which then raises interesting questions about, again, the memory at the end you know is 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 that a wistful memory is it a regretful memory is it a realization that she's incapable of changing we we really don't know and that's why i think rogue is kind of working against uh the sentimentalization of the story
0: and so then from there we get we get them discovering david's body and it's there is enough of vagary here in terms of like i mean it's it's not a clear suicide <laughs> um and, and, and even the way Rogue talks about it and uh, talking about the indigenous culture there, that it's like, well, there is this sense of like when things become an impossibility, life becomes an impossibility. So so to the extent that like he dies due to that rejection, not even necessarily that he takes his life due to that. Although that I don't quite know how to wrap my head around that. but But that seems to be the way Rogue talks about that.
1: Well, I have to say that, you know, there's a couple of ways I read the end or read the posture of his body. One is it's an obvious crucifixion pose. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't turn David into a Christ figure, but it does resonate with a crucifixion in some ways. Um, and you could say, you know, he's been he's been crucified by modern civilization. Um, but also his pose reminded me of the ending of Huxley's Brave New World um and 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 so there is a kind of a trope there of the uh which i which i i don't think it's it's rogue's trope but i think there are those who read it that way it's kind of the trope of the noble savage Mm. who has been um in some ways corrupted uh by by civilization or defeated by civilization but i think what happens at the end of this film is i think that david's act is it's overdetermined. i mean i think there's a number of different things you can you can account for. I mean, you could argue that, um, he's lovesick, that he literally dies of his love being rejected and has nothing to do with the Buffalo hunters. You could argue that you're right. He's realized that civilization, uh, is so encroached upon his world that he can no longer survive in it. You could argue that he's realized, Oh, I see the, the white girl would rather be with people like the Buffalo hunters than with somebody like me. And I don't want to live with that. We, we don't know. And, Mm -hmm. um, and Jenny's I got her in her commentary, says that she doesn't know that nobody, nobody, nobody knows exactly exactly why. But what we do know is there's very different responses to his to his death by Luke and Jenny. Um, Luke, it seems as though, appropriate to his age, doesn't really quite understand what's going on still, and offers mm-hmm. him the knife. Uh, even though he seems to have understood his father is dead. But what does exactly that mean? And she, you know, is more interested in picking up the fruit. And uh, she does. So the second time, she touches his body. Mm-hmm. The first time she touched him when they met in the in, in the outback, and she put her hand on his shoulder, and he kind of recoiled a little bit. Uh, and here she brushes the ants off him, uh, which is, again, a suggestion of some kind of connection but not really able to make one
0: right right so from here they walk on the road they get to this abandoned mining town which is as inhospitable as any place they are um and it, it it is such a great picture of like uh humanity's ravaging of the natural world like just this you know they've mined whatever there is there and left junk behind um and but i want to get to the, the the very ending of this movie so we see jenny in the same apartment that her um that her mother was that that they grew up in so um we don't like you said we don't we 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 jump far forward in time because jenny is now married we have her husband coming home and he's talking about potentially getting a promotion and these things and again we get such an amazing i don't she doesn't say a word in any of this and it's all reading her face and her eyes Um, how haunted she is, at least at this moment. And we get this vision of Eden, this flashback, which is not a scene from the movie. Um, And in fact, it would, it doesn't, it it doesn't entirely make sense as something that happened Mm -hmm. because they're all sitting, they're all there nude together. And it's like, she's very like careful about, about that. And that's one of the things where she, first kind of has this negative response to David is when he approaches her while she's dressing in the house mm-hmm. so it seems like this didn't happen but is the imagined mm. what could have been or maybe what the movie's saying what could never have been yeah. um, and, and then we get this A.E. Hausman uh, poem about uh, um, uh, you know the, the, the places you can't go back to ultimately right
1: Yeah, that is the land of lost content Yes. The shining plane the happy highways where I went and cannot come again.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: And it is interesting and, and, and so in that moment I think Rogue does uh, he he does announce that this is a film that is playing a bit on that on that kind of image of uh, of a lost childhood or of a lost eden or a lost innocence that's not that can't be recaptured.
0: Yes. And it is it is also the moment when you become aware of whose film this is. Yeah, because David has died, we don't know nothing about what happened to Luke. We don't know how this affected Luke. Um, it, which is really interesting. Is like it, this is when we realize this Jenny really has been the center of this, and this is her. This is her story. Um, in in lots and lots of ways. So I find that interesting. Um. As a as a, a way to kind of wrap this movie up, we are running out of time. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie?
1: I just want to quickly say, Sam, that you know you get these two cutaways to the meteorological researchers and the and the and the kind of I don't know what you want to call it, kind of an artist farm. So in in the one that's a generous see, name for that. Okay, so okay, so in in the first one you see a very different kind of you see a sexual dynamic playing out among people of different cultures, and in the second one you see an exploitative uh, relationship with the aborigines. So I think it's interesting. It reminded me a little bit of of, of the strategy and picnic at Hanging Rock, where we were said, you know, what else can I show in order to help kind of make sure that i got a full plot here but of course it's also it's also a commentary and, and it tells you exactly maybe why david doesn't take them down to to follow that woman when they when they meet her
0: absolutely absolutely i loved this movie i really think this like i said i, I the the emotional punch at the end um what is something that's gonna stick with me you know and i so i feel like this movie it doesn't have twists in it per se but like the, fo- the the beginning and the end were both unexpected to me and they they sort of rattled me out of being um feeling like i knew what was happening and mm-hmm. and made me uh made me ask deeper questions and feel something deeper which i mean if you be- create a piece of art that does those two things that's a that's a pretty <laughs> solid piece of art exactly so barrett what do you have for us for next week
1: well, we—I'm um, going to whether or not this film is a Australian New Wave film. Um, we've already been talking about the Australian New Wave. So, uh, one of the other significant directors in the movement is Bruce Beresford, uh, and I want to watch Breaker Morant uh, from 1980, which is a film I should have paired with Pouts of Glory, uh, but that's okay. Uh, it's about the border War. So,
0: oh, fantastic! Cool. Well, Barrett, uh, thank you so much for recommending this movie and for having this conversation. This was really. Um, like i said this is a movie that affects me that i will remember this is a movie that i'm going to show to other people and say you really need to you really need to take this in um that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about breaker morant in the video store